1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you would this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I read verses 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men act the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So the title of the message this morning is, Called to Glorify the Lord called to glorify the Lord. And uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. I pray, Father, as you look into this passage of scripture, I pray that the Spirit of God, would, who's the author of this blessed book, would, would speak to our hearts and have his will and his way, and that our Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted and lifted up, and he'd be glorified, and, the, and his will be done. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You notice, if you notice, this chapter is kind of a continuous narration. There's, there's a conjunction in each section. Verse 11, there's a four. Verse 18, a four. And at verse 26, four, you see. Uh, and, of course, Paul is addressing the, the, the divisions and the things. He talks about how they were called of the Lord and, and for his purpose and and, uh, and, and he concludes here with that they're called to glorify the Lord. Uh, but, of course, the divisions and the things that they were being set aside by were hindering that glory, and they were glorying in themselves. Again, this, this is a church who had, as we mentioned last week, had various and different groups of people within it, like many churches do. There was rich and poor. There was... Masters and slaves, and you know, so all kinds of different groups and classes, and so there's this, there's this uh, opportunity for pride or, and, and worldly wisdom to be exalted because over the poor, there was rich and poor as well, because of these these various factions within that. But that is not the basis. Those classes are not the basis of how spiritual a person is really has nothing to do with it. It can affect it, as we're going to see this morning. You know, this portion of Scripture we're looking at particularly and, 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 uh, is not a declaration discrediting education or scholarship. Now, he says, Not many wise out of the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and weak things confound the mighty, and base things, you know, Speaking of low class uh, and, and, you know, uh, things of lowly nature to confound uh, uh, things which are and so on. But again, this is not a declaration discrediting education or scholarship or position in society. 
You know, to understand the scriptures require we have some education. We have to have some language skills. Grammar. Grammar skills. Uh, parts of speech and so on. In fact, I want you to think about this. The man or the pen that the Holy Spirit is using to pen these words is very educated. He's very educated. The Apostle Paul. Acts 2, 22 and verse 3 in his testimony, he said he was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, who is Gamaliel? Well, Acts 5.34 says, and this is when the, the, the Paul and Peter and John have been brought before the Sanhedrin, and this man stands up, Gamaliel, he says there stood up in the count, one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of law, had in reputation among all the people. This, is what, this was a who's who in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. He was a very educated man. He was a teacher. And he's the one that commanded to put for the apostles forth a little space. He was considered a very intelligent man. He was a teacher of the law. Paul also said in Philippians 3, 4 and 5, Though I might have also confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I have reason to boast in my flesh. If anybody does, I have reason to. And yet he says here, God chooses the foolish thing to confound the wise. He's not, he's not saying that, or discrediting education or scholarship. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. You know, Paul was on his way to become one of the educated elites of his day. You know, we have a lot of people that call themselves elites today that think they know what's best for everyone else. But I, that was Paul. That's why he was arresting Christians and putting them in jail. He thought he knew what was best with his worldly wisdom. He, he also had mastery of many languages in, in 1 Corinthians 14. <coughs> Excuse me. In verses 18 and 19, he said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than y'all. Now, again, understand what are tongues. Tongue is a language. It's a language. So he said, I speak in tongues more than you. I can speak more languages than any of you. I'm sure there were people at Corinth who, who could speak Hebrew, Greek, and, and, and you know, Latin, and probably various languages. But he said, I can speak more languages than any of y'all. He said, yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I may, touch, may teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now, I can't speak in a language that you don't understand. But Paul could, could have spoken in languages they didn't understand. But he said, what good is that? You know, to impress you that I can speak in another language. It's foolish. And even at Athens, in, in Acts chapter 17, at Athens, to the Greeks, he quoted the Greek poets. What I'm saying is, this was an educated man who's penning these words. So he's not saying, this is not a declaration discrediting education or scholarship. God used Paul's education 
to help him to be able to reach and speak to many different people groups with the gospel. And the gospel is to the wise of this world and to the unwise. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul was writing to the churches at Rome in verse 14, he said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. And the passage here doesn't say not any, it says, but not many. Not many. So, so we think about this this morning. First of all, I want to notice that God, the call of God is to everyone. Again, verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Again, it doesn't say not any, it says not many. Not many. See, God gives witness to everyone. God's invitation is to everyone, whether you're wise, whether you're noble, or whether you're mighty, a king, or whatever you might be, whatever class you are in society, whether you're poor, or whether you're rich, or, or, or whether you're educated or not so educated, it doesn't matter. God's invitation is to everyone. And we see this, and the word calling really means is the idea of a divine invitation to embrace salvation. It's an invitation that God gives to every man to embrace the salvation that he's offered. It's a call to draw near to him, into relationship with him. You know, we know that every man has the witness of creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So every man has the witness of creation to him. But the witness of creation is not enough to save a man. You know, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 also bears that out. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Matthew 5, 45 tells us that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and the rain on the just and the unjust alike. See, the witness of creation is to everyone. There's also, the book of Romans tells us, the witness of conscience in chapter 2 and, and verse uh, uh, 14 and 15. It says this, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of, their law, of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. See, our conscience, God's given each, each individual a conscience, and our conscience tells us right and wrong. Pastor Dickerson used to always say, that's why nobody steals his neighbor's cow and ties it in the front lawn. Now, a conscience can be seared. It's not a dependable guide. In fact, we know that the old world, their conscience was so seared that they came to the point that every man did that which was... No, every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. You know, an, an example of somebody who in their conscience and from creation had received the witness of God, a good example of that is Cornelius. Cornelius knew there was a God. 
his conscience and the creation told him there was, but that wasn't enough to save him. And of course, that's where God sent a man. And of course, and we all, then the third, what is also required for the salvation of a soul is the revelation of God's word. In Acts chapter ten, in Acts chapter ten and verses thirty to thirty-three, um, you know, Cornelius had seen had been praying. He'd seen this vision, but in verse thirty of Acts ten, he says. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately therefore I sent to thee, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now therefore are we here all present, before God, notice this phrase, to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. You see, I believe that when a, when a person receives the witness of creation and the witness of conscience, God will send a man. God will send a man with the, with the gospel. They will, some, some way, someone will reach them or someone will be able to get to them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, the call of God is to everyone. And when God called the Apostle Paul, who was an educated man, this is what he said about him. And remember, he, he told, he, he revealed the Lord spoke to Ananias, who I believe was the pastor at Damascus, and said to Ananias, you know, there's this Saul of Tarsus, and he's in this such and such place, and he's praying, you go and speak to him. And, of course, Ananias said, Lord, you know, I've heard the things that this going and what he's here for, and this is what, what the Lord said to Ananias. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, and kings and the children of Israel. See, God commanded or chose Saul, who became Paul, to take the gospel to the wise and the unwise. It's not that he doesn't call any, it's maybe not many. Again, this is not a discrediting of education or scholarship. The call of God is to everyone. However, not everyone responds to God's call. Notice verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. The word chosen here in verse 27 means those whom he has judged fit to receive his favors and separated from the rest of mankind to be peculiarly his own and to be attended continually by his gracious oversight. So chosen is those whom God has judged fit to receive his favors. And he separated them from the rest of mankind. See, this is those who respond to that call 
and receive Him as the Lord and Savior, and God separates us from the, man, the rest of mankind, we are changed from a child of the devil and from the family of the devil into a child of God. And we've been separated out from the rest of mankind. And we've been separated out that he might attend continually to our, to our oversight. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and this has to do with our purpose in life as a child of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He's talking here to the, to the church at Ephesus. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And again, there's that word chosen again. And again, the idea is that we've been separated from the rest of mankind to be his own and that we, he would attend to us continually. We would be attended by his oversight. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And he said this, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You see, God has a plan and a purpose for everyone who will respond to his call, to his invitation. He has a plan and purpose. We can see examples of this in everyday life. You have a, let's say you have a business. And you have a job opening to fill. You're going to look for an employee that is qualified to fill that role. That's qualified to fill that role. I mean, if you have a, if you have a truck repair shop, you want somebody that has an interest and some knowledge in mechanics. And so you would interview that person and ask them some questions to see whether they're fit to fill that role. I mean, you might ask them, how many spark plugs does a 6.5 diesel take? Diesels don't take spark plugs. Now, if he says, oh, no, how many cylinders is a 6.5? Immediately you're going to know, if you know anything about mechanics, that he doesn't know anything about mechanics. And he's not fit to work in your truck repair shop. He, you're going to judge him. You're going to judge him unfit. Now, if you had somebody that said, none. And you begin to ask him some questions, and, and you'd be, you would realize, this guy is fit. So you're going to look for someone who has an interest in what you're doing to promote your company and for its benefit, which will in turn benefit themselves. You don't want to hire an employee who's lazy and irresponsible and tells you from the beginning, I just do things my way. I know you have a protocol, but I do things my way. Try telling God that. See, we don't tell God 
how we're going to do things. Well, you know, I, I realize you have a job here, but I'll train myself. I'll train myself. You know, he will hurt your company and himself. Bottom line is, he's not fit. And if we don't respond to God's call on his terms, we will not be one of his chosen. The invitation is to everyone. That call is to everyone, but we have to respond on his terms to be one of his chosen. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. This, this illustrates this, I believe, very clearly. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus gives a parable here of a marriage feast. It says in verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which had made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to call them, there's our invitation, to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and notice, they would not come. And again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and treated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they that which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore in the highways, and many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. He saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now notice this phrase. For many are called, but few are chosen. Everyone is invited, but few responded. God offers his salvation to the whole world. But you know as well as I do, a small percentage of the world has responded. So not everyone responds to God's call. And speaking particularly about the wise after the flesh, and you know, he gives three categories here where there's not many. The wise after the flesh. The word wise here means skilled, cultivated, or learned, or experts. You know, we could be, in, in Paul's days, these were the Jewish theologians and the Greek philosophers. The Greek philosophers, they mocked him. When he talked about the resurrection, they mocked him. The Jews constantly tried to pervert and, 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 uh, and twist the, the scriptures to suit their own needs. You know, they, they, these tended to rely on their intellectual explanations of life and its origins. They didn't understand what really meant to be born again. I remember my father-in-law saying years ago, I remember coming back from a funeral we had, and there was a Lutheran preacher had part in this funeral also. And he asked that Lutheran preacher, who was 41 years old when he got saved or when he was born again, and you know what he said? 40 years ago when he was baptized. 
So they baptize infants. So he was saved or born again when he was baptized as an infant. That's a, a man that called himself the preacher of the gospel. Of course, you know, many like this, a Presbyterian who says she was predestined to be saved. A Presbyterian I spoke to in Chapel Hill, uh, one house we were working at, said, uh, I don't know about the born-again stuff, but you know, we believe you do good to your neighbor. Now, she was a school teacher. She was educated. She was wise after the flesh. But I fear that it's not just in these denominations. Independent Baptists have become masters of mind manipulation too. Yo, one, two, three, pray after me. This was a... uh, Found this yesterday. This was a uh, soul-winning seminar at Texas Baptist University by Carl Hatch. Now, Carl Hatch, who knows better now, uh, was considered the greatest soul winner in America by Jack Howells and Curtis Hudson. And this is how this is what he told the Texas Baptist University: "Quote, I don't ask anybody if they want to be saved. If you want a positive answer, you must ask a positive question. If you want a no answer, ask a no." No question. If you want a yes answer, ask a yes question. Soul winning is positive. And in soul winning, you have to use a lot of reverse psychology and psychology. For instance, if you're lost and I say, Mr. Smith, let me ask you a question. You don't want to go to hell, do you? He will answer, no. I say, wonderful. You want to go to heaven, don't you? He will say, yes. I will reply, sure you do, sure you do, sure you do. I thank God for a man that doesn't want to go to hell. Now, did you get that? I am reinforcing the fact that he wants to go to heaven. I am keeping everything positive. I don't say, can I show you this, or do you mind if I read the Bible to you? That's negative, and you'll probably get a negative answer. I don't ask people. I just say, I'm so glad you don't want to go to hell, and I will just take a minute here to show you some verses. I don't have long, and I know you don't either. There are three things you need to know. First, Jesus died for you. Isn't that wonderful? Two, Jesus loves you. Isn't that wonderful? Three, Jesus wants you to go to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? I'm so glad you want to. And then he leads them in a prayer. You know, I have a legitimate question to all that. Why do I need to be saved? He never addressed that. Not once. This is not answered. This is psychological manipulation using the scriptures to do it. You know, Jesus, the greatest soul winner who ever lived, told a woman, you've had five husbands, and the one you all have is not your husband. Boy, that's real positive, isn't it? Or he told another man, you sell what you have and you give it to the poor and you come follow me. That wasn't very positive either. But you know, one of those people saw the truth, accepted it, and responded to his call. One of them did. And as a result of her responding to his call, many more responded to his call. 
The other one, of course, we know, went away. See, we're not here. You know, Jesus, what Jesus did is he awoke them to their sin and their need. You know, and this, this, this uh, rich man was a wise man out of the flesh. He was a mighty man out of the flesh. He was a noble. He had, all, he had all three of these characteristics, but he went away. But Jesus awoke them to their sin and need of salvation. You know, we're not here to grow a ministry. We're here to grow people. We're not to use salesmanship or methods of the world. We're to use the word of God. You know, the wisdom of this world says we need to do whatever it takes to reach them with the gospel. That is a wrong philosophy. It's an unbiblical philosophy. We have forgotten that it is the Holy Spirit that convicts and converts the soul, and he uses his word, the truth. And if we compromise or use his word to manipulate, will the Holy Spirit honor our work? Or will he be grieved by it? The old saying is, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if we manipulate them with the word of God, they will manipulate the life of God in themselves. Wise after the flesh. Not many. Not many mighty. Mighty speaks of wealth, influence, rich and famous. Genesis chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it talks about there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He says, not many mighty. There's not many noble. And nobility has the idea of born into special social or political status. Aristocracy. He's an aristocrat. Do you know something? Paul was really an aristocrat. He told that Roman centurion, I was freeborn. And he said, my freedom came at great price. Paul said, I was freeborn. But you know, many times, this, this, they, the 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 aristocracy, or as they call themselves today, the elite class, they think they are the enlightened class with the understanding of humanity that we commoners lack. And from their exalted minds, they know what's best for us and for our children, and because of their position in society, they have esteemed responsibility to protect us from ourselves and our religious beliefs. No thank you. kind of reminds me, if you've seen the movie Sheffy, after Sheffy gets converted at that old barn or tent meeting he went to, you know, and, and he goes back and his aunt, and he tells his aunt that he got saved, and, you know, they were aristocrats. And, and she, you know, she says, we are not repentant sinners, poor farmers. You see, Paul's not saying not any, he's saying not many. These things can be a great hindrance to the gospel. But I want you to notice thirdly, the call is for his glory. And again, this, this passage is not putting down wisdom, might, or nobility, or exalting fools, or exalting the weak or the base. You know, a foolish means without learning, without scholarship, 
the weak means to be infirm, destitute with a power, and of course base means to be low born. But no, it's not about any of that, whether it's the wise or the foolish, it's about the glory of God. It's not about what you know or don't know, it's about your how you respond or your attitude toward God. You know, somebody has said, quote, everybody is ignorant, just on different subjects, unquote. You know, we are all ignorant on some subjects. Somebody else said, the only ignorance that is bliss is the ignorance of the man who thinks he knows everything, unquote. And the message here of the Lord through Paul, who was learned, who had a position and influence society, who was of noble birth, is that there is no grounds or basis for any man to boast about anything before God. Or man, for that matter. Look at 1 Corinthians. And Paul's going Paul's to continue hammering this home to the just church at Corinth. And if you notice in chapter 4, <coughs> verses 6 and 7, he asks some questions here. He says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? Who made you different from somebody else? Who gave you that intelligence that somebody else does not have? Or a position that somebody else does not have? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? You know, there is no such thing as a self-made man. They don't exist. There's some that think they do. They think they are. You know, the, the root of your wisdom, your might, your nobility that you may have is from somebody else. You didn't come into this world a self-made person nor will you be much without some training, without some nurturing of someone else. Yeah, I've yet to hear of self-birth. Or a self-fed baby. I mean, it'd be nice sometimes. Or self-learned to talk. Or to read. Or write. Of course, I don't know. It may come about we have women now that are marrying themselves. And you talk about foolish. It's happening more and more. Just read the other day, a lady spent $7,000 on her own wedding to marry herself in Italy. Must be exciting. They call it sologamy. It's not even a word. If you look it up on dictionary.com, it's not even a word. You know, solo gummy, you know, sologamy. That's what they call it. However, no one will stand before God and declare, I had you figured out. Or, you did just like I thought you would. Hmm, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But, you know, there were some at Corinth who were prideful in their worldly wisdom and their positions of influence and their positions of birth. And Paul's warning them, look, that can be a hindrance or it can be a help. 
it depends on what you do with it. I think it was John R. Rice that made the statement, quote, scholarship is a wonderful teacher, but a terrible master, unquote. You know, our trust, our confidence is to be in the Lord, not in who or what we are. And God, and Paul is telling them here, look, God can take the ignorant and make them wise. He can take the weak and make them strong. He can take the base and make them noble. And the word noble here means of an exalted moral or mental character or excellence. If you notice in verse 30, he says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And, like I say, you need a little understanding of English to, to, to help you with Scripture. What's the subject of that sentence? I struggled with it. It's been a long time since I was in grammar school. Forty years. Thirties. I don't know. I can't even remember. The, I mean, years ago. So I asked Daniel. What's the subject of that sentence? I had an idea. It's ye. And this is in middle voice, so the action is on the subject. And God, and what the Bible is telling us here is, God is making us the wisdom of God. God is making us the righteousness of God. God is making us the sanctification of God. God is making to us redemption. Wisdom means... The broad and full intelligence used of knowledge of very diverse matters, which includes a knowledge of the divine plan previously hidden of providing salvation for men by expiatory, the sacrificial death of Christ. Did you ever stop and think what percentage of the world understands the plan of God? The real sad thing is how many people that go to church understand God's plan? It's not very many. Because they lack the wisdom of God. And you know, if you understand God's plan, you know how this world's going to end. We know how the end's going to come. What's going to happen? I mean, we don't know the details. God doesn't give us the details, but he does give us enough to know how it's going to end. We know there's going to be a rapture of the saints. There's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. We've just been through this in the book of Revelation. Then there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ. We know all that. We understand that. Because God has given to us his wisdom. He's made unto us. We have the wisdom to know that we are righteous before a holy God. You know, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the wisdom to know that we have been made righteous before God. We are perfectly righteous in the sight of God through our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. We have the wisdom to understand sanctification. Sanctification is a purification of the heart and life that we experience as we submit to Him, as we walk with Him. You know, we have the understanding to know that God is working in my life. And He's conforming me into the image of Christ. 
And He will continue to work in my life until He comes for me. Chapter 1 here, verse 8 of Corinthians, he says, Who shall also conform you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Philippians 1, 6 says, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. In other words, he's going to continue to work in your life to sanctify you, to separate you from those sinful habits and that sin that daily be He's going to work in your life to continually set you apart from sin so that you become more like Christ. Until he comes for us. In fact, Philippians tells us, and in Philippians 1, again, talks about growing in love, that we may approve excellent things. Excellent things. These, see, these, we, can, we can have the wisdom, though, that God is doing this in our lives. The wisdom to understand that we have redemption. We can know and understand that we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. The wrath of Almighty God. We've been delivered from the wrath of Almighty God. Because we are in Him. We are in His hand. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be made alive. You see, God has given, He's made unto us. He's, he's given, giving to us, He's working to give, and this is a continual thing, working to give us the wisdom, His wisdom to understand these things. You know, there were some men that God gave wisdom. Think of Job. He was the wisest man of the East. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. All these were wise men. Men of means. It's not any. It's just not many. But God can make can take the foolish, he can take the base, he can take the weak and make them the wisdom, the righteousness, and the sanctification and redemption. Understand these things. But you know, it all depends on how we respond to his call. You know, eight times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus made this statement. If any man have ears, let him hear. And in the book of Revelation, to the seven churches of Revelation, he made this statement. Again, to every church, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And, and the point of this is, God is calling or inviting everyone into a relationship with him that you might have the wisdom, the righteousness, might have sanctification, and have assurance of redemption in him. God is calling everyone to that. Whether they're rich, wise, or of nobility, or whether they're foolish and weak or base, God's calling everyone into that relationship. The question is, will we respond to his call? Will we hear, not just with the ears, but with the heart? That's why he said, 
Many are called, but few are chosen. So the question is not, is God calling or seeking me? The question is, am I opening into listening to what he is seeking me for? Are you glorifying the Lord or are you self, glorifying self? You see, the church at Corinth had those that were setting themselves up as authorities or as wise who were opposing God and leaning to worldly wisdom. No, we need to seek the wisdom of God and his understanding, like Solomon, who said, Give me wisdom and an understanding heart that I might judge just so great a people. So we're here to glorify the Lord. Is that what you're doing today? Are you glorifying him? Are you responding? Have you responded to his call? And then are you responding to his instruction daily in your life?